Welcome to a special episode of The Mind of Mr. Crystal, the only place where the world makes sense. Join me, your ghost, uh, I mean host, as we embark on another journey through a mind so full of ideas, it takes a weekly podcast to let them out. <laughs> With a shake and a sizzle, it's the mind of Mr. Crizzle. If it rains or if it drizzles, it's still the mind of Mr. Crizzle. With a pop and a fizzle, make a statue with the chisel. It's all the same in the mind of Mr. Crizzle. I drink a lot of water, now I gotta take a whistle. Where's the bathroom in the mind of Mr. Crizzle? Now we're here, and I'm for Rizzle. It's the mind of Mr. Crizzle. Hello, Krizzlets. It is Halloween today, and have I got some treats for you. No tricks here. It's all listener stories. And hey, before we begin, I just want to remind everybody that it really helps out when you go to the iTunes page and you review the show, you give us some stars. Also, I know some of the other podcast providers have their own uh, reviewing service. Please go there, review this episode. Um, It really helps with findability across all the platforms, and I'd really appreciate it. I love reading the reviews and seeing what you guys think about the podcast. Furthermore, if you like what you hear, share it with your friends. Share it with your families. Get it out there. Let people hear it. There's a lot of podcasts that I listen to, and I love telling my friends and family about them and seeing the same joy uh, in their faces as they tell me about listening to it. And I want to be able to be that podcast for you to share with your friends and family. So please share it. Let people hear it. I put a lot of time and effort into this particular episode. Just like last year on the Listener Stories episode, I did all of the music. And in this one, I tried some new things with some sound effects and things like that. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Our first story tonight was shared to me by a listener through the email address for the podcast, mindandmrkrizzle at gmail.com. If you have something you'd like to share with me that I can in turn share on a future podcast, please don't forget to email me at mindandmrkrizzle at gmail.com. This story, along with all the other ones you'll hear tonight, are all true stories from the writer's point of view. So I hope you enjoy this first one, A Spectral Scout. This still shakes me up. My eyes water, and I get chills whenever I think of it. As a 13-year-old scout, we went to summer camp in the Fort Davis Mountains of West Texas. A group of about six of us boys went for a hike after dinner to a cave that was about 30 to 45 minutes away. On our return trip, we were hiking single file, singing, and, you know, picking on one another. Although I was the last scout in line, I wasn't. A young boy in scout uniform was following behind me. He seemed so happy to be with our group and to feel the camaraderie and frivolity. Although I could see him, something wasn't clear or tangible about him. When we stopped about halfway home to take a break, he sat next to me and laughed and seemed truly happy. He never said anything, just smiled and giggled when we all did. I couldn't say anything. Although I could see him clearly and hear his laugh, no one else seemed to notice. I felt confused or in a dream, but I could feel his presence next to me. We hiked the rest of the way. When we made our last turn from the trail into our campsite, he stopped just outside the camp. Then, with the longing look, he disappeared. As he disappeared, I felt like I came to my senses. I realized who and what he was. He was a sad, lost boy. He had died the same age as us, and he wanted so bad to belong to a group of friends again. I broke down crying, freaked out by the whole thing. My friends and leaders checked on me, and I explained the story to my scoutmaster. He didn't know quite what to say. I didn't either. But he seemed so sincere in believing me, which helped me calm down. I don't think I've ever told that story since, except to my wife and kids. I did learn that night that they truly walk among us. Spirits 
are around us. I have an extra special treat for all you Chrislets tonight. My very close and personal friend Kathy was able to send in some of her own stories from her life. As long as I've known Kathy, she's always been super brave and almost a buzzkill whenever we go to haunted houses. She's that person who doesn't yell at all, and whenever the people in the haunted house jump out, she yells at them to scare them. She just never really seems intimidated by anything. After hearing some of her first-hand experiences with the other side, I've realized that this lack of fear and fake is only because of her fear of the real. There's going to be a couple stories peppered throughout the episode, but I want you to listen to her stories in her own words. And she does her first one, where she talks about her haunted house in Chicago. Hi, my name is Catherine. I'm going to, I guess, talk about my experience with the supernatural or I guess you want to say uninvited, wanted spirits. Um, My first encounter when I was a kid, I used to live in Chicago, uh, Illinois. I lived in on North Sacramento, the corner house, and I must have been five or six, seven years old. I mean, I know I was a pretty young little girl lived there with my parents, my mom, my dad, my sisters, my grandma, Gloria. She was a big Catholic religious person. So in her in her room, she had, you know, crucifix kind of hanging around, holy water. You know, I felt like her, her room was probably the safest room in the house. I mean, we really didn't have those things kind of hanged around the house. Oh, man. So it's a little tough talking about these. These were very spooky, scary things that happened to me when I, you know, growing up. Nobody really believed me until one day my mom went and kind of did her research because she started believing me. So let's talk about that. Things would happen, I would say, like while I was sleeping um, at night, you know, I would get bothered by, you know, I felt like there were unwanted spirits. I used to kind of like, I used to feel like long, sharp nails going, you know, crawling up my legs. I would feel them on my back, almost like scratches. I, I want to say I think I was dreaming or if I was in the middle of a REM but I mean, I would wake up and my body was stiff, like I couldn't talk, I couldn't move, felt like nobody could hear me, my voice, I was, like if something was holding me down, and then I would let go and kind of just come out of it. And it was really hard to explain it, especially when you're a five, six-year-old and you're peeing on the bed and your parents are always mad at you, but you're like, I, I can't get up, I couldn't move, I was too scared, I'd, you know, I would run to my parents' room in the middle of the night crying, they didn't believe me, send me back to bed, <laughs> then again, who would want to hear their screaming children in the middle of the night? And then I would go sleep with my sisters. Them two would kind of kick me off their bed. They're pretty, pretty, pretty brutal when we were kids. So I was always left in my room by myself. Never, ever had a good night's sleep. Probably the best sleep I had is when I would spend the night at my cousin's house. And I'd be like, oh, this was the best sleep. Wasn't bothered. So, so you can tell this was probably like every night I was always bothered. Of course, when my parents started believing me is when little things started happening around the house. Okay. So my house was a pretty big house. So they're kind of like divided into like three little sections. I mean, the houses are not very big and long in the city. They're, they're very like tall length. Um, if I'm explaining that right, but you have, you know, the attic, then you have the first floor and then you kind of have a basement. Now basements are pretty creepy. I mean, then again, like I said, as children, you don't know what, what's scary, what, what's the unknown, what's, you know, I mean, as a child, I was very confused as to why these events were happening to me and only me, but that was just the beginning. I mean, it kind of got worse. Other people started noticing it. Um, so when I would complain about these things, it was of course like, oh, she's just making it up. She's a child. But I mean, I would see things like, like a quick black thing would run across the living room. Um, I think one time my dad said that the Christmas tree was set in front of our window and then off to, it somehow ended up moved in front of the door. My dad said he had to like open the front door because the tree was kind of blocking our front door. It was like wedged. So we're like, who moved that huge Christmas tree? And I mean, it was a real Christmas tree. It was heavy. That was still unknown. Um, another event, I had a cousin that lives here in San Antonio, Texas. She came and visit us up to Chicago and her name is Tina. Um, and she said that 
she saw like some, you know, dark figures on the wall. She knew there was some things messing with her and she did not want to come back. She was like, yeah, I don't want to live in this house. Another cousin of mine, she actually lives in Chicago. She said that she saw a, a ghost kind of hanging around the ceiling fan. It was just staring at her. And of course, she, she spooked her out. She didn't want to come back. And my cousin saw, my cousins who actually lived, moved here to San Antonio with us, used to live in our basement and said they used to see all kinds of stuff down there. Of course, when all of these events started unraveling, my mom grew curious and she was like, hey, well, man, everybody's starting to complain of these events. My daughter can barely sleep. You know, I mean, I would literally feel sharp nails till this day. I don't even know if anybody knows, but I hate to be tickled or touched a certain way because it brings back those horrible memories where I felt like these spirits were trying to tickle me, but in a, almost like in a torturing, taunting way. It was not fun. It was not funny to me. I know I was being bothered by, you know, something that was not, not welcomed. I think, uh, my mom had asked a neighbor that must've been living in that neighborhood for years. And she asked, you know, have, has anything ever happened in the house we're living at? And uh, she said, yeah, 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 there was a couple living there. And um, I guess the husband was cheating on the wife. Something happened. They got into an altercation and the wife decided to uh, cut his middle part off. I mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to say certain words, but you guys get it. And he, she threw it in the grass, which is the front yard of her house. Meaning in Chicago, there's not really much of a yard, but it means a little speck of grass. But she threw it there and she hit his body in the basement and there was a, a door downstairs that was like led to like another little, it was a closet, very creepy, very weird. And I remember I used to open up that door and there was really nothing there, which is like kind of dirt and dust. I mean, really you didn't want to use that closet, but I would open it. And I mean, apparently they found him hung there or there. And so I'm not sure how, if that spirit ever, you know, was like was around the house kind of spooking everybody, but definitely, definitely very spooky, eerie house. It was very, very scary. Um, thinking about it, memories, I, I hate to think about it. I mean, I miss the home, I miss the memories, but as a child, it wasn't very, the most pleasant thing to sleep at night, but that was just my first event, but it actually gets a little bit more creepier. I hope you enjoyed listening to Kathy's stories as she gave her first-hand accounts of growing up in a house that was played with many different haunted experiences. Let's continue on with a story of my own. This is a true story. It's happened to me, and I don't think I've ever told it to anybody before. So here it is, a Mind of Mr. Crizzle exclusive, my story of the ghostly knockers. As a child... I lived on the second floor of a condominium in Las Vegas, Nevada. As memory serves, I was a pretty happy kid and enjoyed living there as an only child with my mom, who was a single parent at the time. She would sing me a song every night before bed and tuck me in. Sometimes, I could even convince her to sing more than one song to me. Despite this idyllic setting, I often remember having vivid nightmares. I can't be sure if these nightmares were common or if I just distinctively remember the few. Either way, the following story wasn't a dream. On more than one occasion, I would wake up in terror to pounding on the front door. This pounding would startle me awake and I'd sit in the dark waiting to hear if it would continue. I wouldn't consider my mom a heavy sleeper, so I would think the aggressive thumping would startle her awake as well, but it never did. I would lay under the covers with all my senses heightened, straining to hear whoever was outside I'd wait for the pounding on the door to come again. When the noise didn't continue, I'd make the decision to crawl into my mom's bed just to be on the safe side. Her room was at the other end of the hallway, opposite of my room. To get to her, I would have to walk down the pitch black hallway which seemed like forever when in fact it was probably just a few feet. What's worse is that to get to her door, I'd have to walk past the entrance to our living room area where the front door was located. I would stand in my bedroom doorway frozen in terror with the thought of that whoever was at the front door would see me creep past as I traveled down the hall. When I would finally summon the courage to take that dash to safety, I took a deep breath and bolted. 
As soon as I went past the hallway entrance that spilled into the living room, the slamming began again. He saw me! With no time to turn back, I'd continue my sprint and rush into my mom's room and hopped under the covers. The only thumping I heard after that was the thumping of my six-year-old heart. I don't remember telling my mom what I'd heard. I was weird like that. I just kept it to myself and assumed that it was a dream flooding over into reality. Similar situations would happen throughout my life. I was always alone when they would happen. There was never anyone else to corroborate my story. I had convinced myself that even though I would still hear the pounding, even after I woke, it was just my mind playing tricks. In my adult years, I heard of a condition called exploding head syndrome. Sounds intense, right? By definition, this syndrome is a condition in which a person experiences unreal noises that are loud and of short duration when falling asleep or waking up. The noises may be frightening, typically occurs only occasionally, and is a non-serious in nature. Upon learning this, I had finally solved the mystery of what plagued me my whole life. This is until I decided to take a nap a couple years ago. I now live in a two-story house in a family-friendly neighborhood located in the hill country, just outside of San Antonio, Texas. Working from home the majority of the time allows me the privilege of temporarily taking a nap during the day while my wife is at work. My toy poodle will often follow me into my upstairs room and join me in slumber on his pillow at the foot of our bed on the floor. One afternoon, I woke up in a familiar, terrified state as I heard pounding on the front door downstairs. I looked at my dog's pillow and he wasn't there like he always is. I ended up finding him standing alert and in that attention at the top of our stairs looking down towards the front door. Normally, he barks when someone's at the door, but this time he didn't. I raced to my bathroom door which gives me view to the whole street in front of our house and waited for whoever pounded on our door to walk away. I'd be able to catch whoever had the audacity to wake me up from my catnap in such an alarming way. I counted the seconds which turned into minutes and never saw anyone leave. I eventually walked down to the front door with my dog following close, also eager to see who was on the other side. When I opened the door, no one was there. Now I don't know what to think. If it was this exploding head syndrome, why did my dog hear the pounding too? If it was someone at the door, where did they go? I don't think I'll ever have a definitive answer. Our next story was also submitted to mindofmrcrizzle at gmail.com. As I read this story, I thought to myself, while so many are ready to believe in angels and in heaven, we don't often think about the other side of that coin, with demons, and the devil, and hell. As you listen to our next story, think to yourself, demons? Oh, they're real. I'm a tough guy. I was raised to be tough with all the stereotypical attitudes that go with that. I come across as a no-nonsense dude. My build allows me to be as intimidating as I want it to be and I don't run from a fight. It's not like I look for trouble. I don't. If possible, I'll try to take the kind way out. But I'm not afraid to get in there and fight if I have to. Now, I'll admit that I'm not a huge fan of spiders. So I went out and bought myself a salt gun to shoot the little buggers. I tell you that because I want you to understand that I recognize that there are some dangerous things in the world. Still, I don't think of them and get scared. I, I plan a way to defend myself. Thus, fear is not an emotion that I feel too often. But I know what fear is. Man, you better believe that. There is one thing I try not to think about too often. The thing that scared the crap out of me. Not just because of the terror. Not just because I don't think everyone will believe me but also because I don't have a gun or any means to defend myself from it. I was in middle school. I lived in a house built like a log cabin. I was used to the various creaks and moans of the house settling. The wood stove in the basement would just barely keep the chill out of my second floor bedroom. It was nice to get to bed after a late day of football practice and curl up under my warm quilts. I'd make sure only my face was kept out of the cover so I'd stay warm. After that, I'd sleep like a baby. However, one night I woke up freezing. I'd been asleep before when the wood stove had burned out, but then I just wrapped the covers tighter and went back to sleep. This time it was different. 
It wasn't just that room was cold, it was like I was being frozen from the inside of my body out. As I began to wake up more, I realized my covers were down at the bottom of my bed. Still, something inside me knew that I should not move to grab them. I realized I was not just feeling the after effects of a bad dream. I was terrified. Something was in my room and it was a bad mofo. I forced myself to open my eyes, telling myself to just slowly look around the room. But my eyes jetted to the corner above my bed and I saw it. And I knew it saw me. Though it was night, my room was not completely dark. In fact, it was easy to make out the lamp, my dresser, the closet door a bit ajar, my clothes laying on the chair, and even the covers at the end of my bed. But the corner above my bed somehow seemed to suck all the darkness to it like it was the blackest black that ever was. And just to the right of that black was a figure staring at me. One of its hands or claws wasn't visible because it was attached to the black hole like it needed to be tethered to it. Its knees were pulled up to its chin which was sticking out at a weird cartoon angle. Its other arm was bent at an elbow. The elbow seemed stuck to the wall but somehow the forearm and hand with gnarled knuckles and incredibly long pointed fingernails were reaching towards me. I knew without any doubt or hesitation that there was a demon in my room. I remained there paralyzed. It had been ingrained for me not to call out for help, so I didn't make a sound. I desperately wanted to reach down and pull my covers over my head, yet I felt this monstrous demon and I were in some demented game of chicken, and if I was to move at all, that clawed hand would slice my skin. So I just stared at it right in its eyes. I wish I could say it was because I was so brave and was attempting to challenge it to some devilish stare down, but it wasn't like that at all. I was just so scared, too afraid to move, and I was so cold. I even thought I may be dead, like I somehow froze to death, and I kept staring, and it kept staring at me. I don't know how long it lasted. Eventually, I did what every young boy would do. I started praying, praying like my life depended on it. Maybe it did. Then the demon moved. I held myself even more, still trying not to even breathe, while I kept praying, barely moving my lips. The demon began to reach further into the black hole with the hand that had been tethered to it. It did not so much move into the blackness as it just became the blackness and then the blackness disappeared. As soon as it did, I grabbed my covers and hid under them until morning. I began sleeping with the flashlight next to my bed and still do to this day. It was not the last time I would see that demon, but it was the last time I felt unarmed to face it. Like I said before, I'm not scared of much, but it still scares me. Let's join Kathy again as she tells us about a night drive that she takes to the small town of Poteet, just south of San Antonio. At the beginning of the story, she talks about taking a joyride with some of her friends, one of them being Erica. The funny story behind Erica is I'd been friends with Kathy for years, and although Erica was in a lot of her stories, I'd never met the girl once. I'd met all of Kathy's family and all of her other friends, but this Erica, she could have been a ghost story all of her own. A little update though, I've met her recently and she's very real. So anyway, let's continue with the night drive. So here's another crazy event. I was driving with a bunch of friends. Okay, so this guy, we were in high school with my best friend Erica, which Chris swears this girl does not exist because he's never met her before. I mean, Chris has been a big part of my life for like 10 plus years. And I'd always talk about this one childhood friend named Erica but every, I mean, she was just kind of mysterious. She was always in and out of my life, but he always said, I never meet her. You probably made her up. Funny joke. Anywho, we were kids in high school and, um, we went for a joy ride with a friend of ours. His name was Andrew. I think his, and he had a little, you know, friend next to him. His name was Pete. You know, Erica was dating the Andrew guy, the one that drove the Cav red Cavalier car. And I mean, Pete was just my friend. We, uh, drive out to Poteet. So I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with Poteet, but... It's a little bit like when you drive out there, it's kind of like there's really nothing there. It's 
almost like grass, like kind of looked like it was just like country, not very much. But I mean, what I remember, it was really dark and we we're kind of taking like a joy ride out there since there's really not much traffic. I guess they wanted to drive fast or just go on a little silly drive. Anywho, like I said, we were young, we were in high school. So we kind of pull over. I remember, I remember seeing a po- Poteet. I must have been like 16 years old. I remember seeing the exit Poteet. All right, we drive somewhere down and all you see is just like country, country. And it's real dark. And um, they say, hey, let's pull over. Um, I can't remember what we were doing. I, I want to say we were just kind of hanging out. And um, me and my friend Pete decide, hey, let's get out of the car and just kind of look outside. Like, let's just stand outside, lean on the car and talk. We left, you know, my friend Eric and Andrew in the back seat. You know, we're kids, probably hooking up, you know, having a good time. While we were outside leaning on the car, I could hear almost like a, like almost like somebody howling, like not like a dog wolf howling, but how do I say like a, like a, like just weird, almost like, I always describe it as, have you ever seen that movie Ghost? When the bad spirit comes and takes that evil man um, or any bad bad people that lived on earth down to like I, you want to, I guess call it hell they send those bad and how he, in the movie Ghost they're making a very ugly hollering noise it's almost like oh that's what we heard and I mean I heard it and then he was still talking and then then he looked at me and I, I looked at him and I I said do you hear that Pete he says oh shit I think I hear that whatever we ignore it. I mean, like I said, I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere, nothing around us, dark, pitch dark. And then again, I hear it again. And this time it gets closer and closer, and then it starts to get deeper and deeper. And then, I mean, we looked at each other, and we were like, hell no, let's get out of here. We jump in our car, and um, I mean, this is not even his car. I jump in the passenger, he he jumps in the driver's side, and I mean, I mean, we, we peel off like... I mean, he takes off. And so his friend and my, his friend and my friend are in the backseat, kind of their heads pop up and she's like, what's going on? And he's like, hey man, slow down. And Pete's like, you don't even know what we heard. This, it was just really scary, creepy. It was getting closer, got louder. And I was like, yeah, I swear, like we're not tripping. This was real live noise. So he says, y'all need to pull over. He pulls over and we're kind of breathing in and out. And we're like, oh God, like you should have just heard this noise. And y'all guys didn't hear it and they're, you know, thinking that we're crazy and we're tripping or we're like, no, we really did hear this. And then all of a sudden his, we hear something. It's kind of like a scratchy noise, but his rear rear mirror starts to move on the, on the passengers. Oh no, on the driver's side. So we all turn around and look and his river mirror starts to click. Like it's cause you know, when you gotta like, you gotta kind of push a button to move those things or you know, sometimes you, you roll down your window and you, you kind of like move it on your own and it makes like a click noise. So we all witnessed that. And then let me tell you something. When he told his friend to slow down, I mean, he told him opposite, like he told him, take off. So he, he's like, put it on drive. So we real dramatically, he put it on drive and he just, I mean, we booked it. And uh, we went back into the city. We really didn't talk about it. We kind of was just like, oh, what an experience. Our next story was submitted by somebody very close to me. In this story, she talks about being her uncle's favorite niece and how not all ghosts are bad. And in her own words, that's why I'm not afraid of ghosts. I was born on my uncle Dennis's 16th birthday. Of course, that made me his favorite niece. One of my clearest childhood memories is being at my grandma's house waiting at the top of the steep, narrow set of stairs that led from the third floor of the house to the second floor side landing. As soon as my uncle would open the door, I would yell, Uncle Dennis! And without waiting for any cue, I would leap down the 10-foot drop into his arms. I never doubted that he would catch me, and he never gave me any reason to. A memory just as clear is the memory of the day I was told he died. I was a month shy of being six years old, I was in the bathroom and my sister came in the door yelling, Uncle Dennis died! I cried out something about her lying, but somehow I knew it was true. I reached for the door handle and instead fell to the ground sobbing. I learned later he had been shot in the head in Vietnam, but I was considered a kid. 
I was unable to attend the funeral, nor did anyone really mention much about him to me. Looking back, I'm sure everyone thought I would just forget and go on with my life. After all, I, I was just about to start the first grade, so how important could an uncle be? Consequently, I never felt I should share with them the number of times I would stand at the top of the stairs and see Uncle Dennis at the bottom of the second landing, this time warning me not to jump. I was never afraid, nor did I even think it was unusual. Time passed. My family moved away and eventually my grandma and grandpa sold that house. The older I got, the less I would see my uncle. However, in times of great fear or sadness, I would sense him near me with an abundance of love. As I completed high school, I began to think of Uncle Dennis not as a ghost, but as just a loved one who had passed on who would check up on me from time to time. I didn't doubt he was there, I just minimized the actual physical presence. I went off to college and moved away from home to start my own life. Without giving too many embarrassing details, I began to stretch my wings which found me putting myself in dangerous situations. At first, I chalked up my reason for suddenly becoming aware of being in danger, such as finding myself alone with a guy of bad intentions, or entering a, a bar I had no business being in, or just a whispering of my consciousness, or maybe even a prompting of the spirit. Yet, I couldn't deny that often the urge to leave came from a more physical feeling like a push or a shout. It was not something I can ignore or dismiss. It was an action that required a reaction. Somehow, I knew it was linked to my Uncle Dennis. One night in particular, I had gone out with some friends clubbing in downtown Dallas. After several hours of drinking and dancing, I began to feel hot and queasy. I had lost sight of my friends, so I figured I would just go outside for a bit and let my head clear. I stepped through the door I thought was the main entrance, only to discover it led into a back alley between a couple of the clubs. The air was shockingly cold, and it immediately made me alert to my surroundings. I could make out a group of guys about four feet from me, blocking the way to the street. In the other direction, I could only make out a blocked area. I reached behind me to go back through the door, but it was locked from the outside. The click of the door caused the attention of the men. Now I could see that there were four of them to be focused on me. Walking towards me, reaching out for my arm, one male said, Well, well, little lady, are you looking for a real man? Before I can say a word, which I must admit I cannot think of one, the other three started walking towards me, adding their own crude comments. I was afraid, terrified even. However, more than that, I remember thinking, this is my fault. I shouldn't be here. I was frozen. I hadn't even removed my hand from the door handle behind me. I, I tried to remember my action plan, scream, fight like hell, and run away. I could hear the music from the inside of the buildings. All I could really think was this was going to hurt so bad and the ground is going to be so cold. Then everything went silent. For the first time, my eyes met the eyes of the man who had grabbed my arm, but he wasn't looking at me. He was looking next to me. His expression was changing from cocky to startled to fear. The other three guys were frozen in place just as I had been. Suddenly. I was aware of a fifth man standing very close to my left side. I heard him say, though I don't know if it was out loud or just in my head, Run to the street, Deb. I will take care of these guys. Just as I jumped into my uncle's arm without hesitation, I heeded my uncle's counsel and ran. As I got to the street, I looked back. My uncle Dennis was there. He looked up just to tell me to look away and find my friends. I did. I saw my uncle two more times after that. One time was on my way to work. I worked early morning shift from 3 in the morning to 11 o'clock. I was on my way to drop off my son at the sitter and saw someone walking away from a car on the side of the road. Assuming the car had broken down and the guy was stranded, I stopped off for him a ride. It was before the time of cell phones. As he opened the door to get in, I knew I had made a mistake. However, before he can get in, my uncle Dennis was there in his seat. The man jumped out and I sped away. Before I can thank him, my uncle was gone. The third time was a time I needed comfort. Several years ago, I got the opportunity to visit the Vietnam Memorial. As I made an etching of his name, I thanked him for protecting me. 
He conveyed that it was his job until I married. Now he has others to defend. I know there are bad, scary things out there, but I'm not afraid of ghosts. As I listen to Kathy's stories, it's not lost on me that her bubbling personality and her bright outlook on life is in a direct opposition to these horrible and terrifying stories. In the last few stories that she shares here, she's going to point out why it's very important that we don't mess with things we don't understand. Because they could follow us home and stay with us. My mom used to always say that whatever happened in the house of Chicago that was bothering me, she always felt like it would it fought it followed me around and would taunt me sometimes. Sometimes I would have night terrors. Sometimes I was st- still happening those same events as a child would happen to me as an adult. And in case I mean Chris should know that um, I was never really scared of things, haunted houses, scary movies never really phased me. I think it's because after everything I went through and experienced, I had to kind of build this like um, almost like a tough wall and for a while there I was kind of misled trying to figure out you know the spiritual world and what's the unwanted spirits and what what was their purpose here and why were they you know taunting us and I mean I was very educated in that lifestyle I didn't know anything until of course I mean I'm you know now that I'm older I study and I learn any I don't want to go in further in that but um I just kind of didn't understand like what they wanted and why were they messing with me but I remember one incident, an ex-girlfriend of mine, we kind of did Halloween a little way too much. We were watching scary movies, going to haunted houses, watching movie shows about, you know, haunted places. I mean, I was very intrigued. And when I mean intrigued, I was intrigued. Why? Because I've always experienced things like this in my, all my life. I was, I was always messed with. It's almost like I was just kind of chasing my fear. or I, I couldn't, I can't explain it, but it became almost like a, like a habit I needed to, like a, almost like a hobby. One night we fell asleep and um, I was kind of like, again, the whole thing with, was I asleep? Was I awake? Was I in the middle of a rim? I woke up and I saw like a black shadow over my body. Like, again, I was stiff. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. And it was like a black shadow over me, almost like, it, to me, it looked like the the Reaper. And um, I looked at it and I said, if, if you show me your face, I'm probably going to be pretty spooked out for the rest of my life. So I was kind of hoping it wouldn't show me anything. I mean, it was kind of like a black, dark face and I could see like almost like a rope kind of figure. You know, I mean, I I had an idea what it was. It was kind of like hovering over my body and all I can do is just pray. I just remember my mom praying, showing me a little few prayers and I prayed and I prayed and I, I just said, you know, get this spirit away from me. It's not wanted. And as I tried to stay strong. I remember turning my head around. It was real hard to do, but it was real stiff and almost like thick. I couldn't do it. Then I look at my partner who's asleep next to me and she's moving her head and she's like, no, no. And she's like holding her head. She was almost like crying in her sleep. And I had never seen that. I had been with this person for quite some time and never seen her do that in her sleep. And and then I kind of snapped out of it, woke up. I mean, I, I don't even know till this day. I still don't know if it was a dream. Or was it really happening? I kind of snapped out of it. And I still saw her in that same, like, you know, holding her head. She was crying. I woke up and I said, Savannah, Savannah, wake up. Are you okay? And she woke up crying and she said, I, f- I felt like sharp nails were were scratching at my head. And I said, no, there's nothing there. Are you okay? She goes, what happened? And she was like really spooked out. Like, I mean, she was crying to a point she called in work. She did not want to go to work. I mean, whatever was doing, whatever the thing was doing to her or whatever she was dreaming or it really spooked her out. But the crazy part was that it happened to us both at the same time. So when I told her my story, she was like, yeah, like I felt like something was scratching my head, like really hard with sharp nails. It gave me a headache and I can't go to work. She called off the whole day. She was, so her and I were, we were pretty spooked out. Let me tell you, we went to go visit her grandma who, you know, pretty religious. And uh, she kind of gave us some holy water. We were like kind of, after that, I think I was kind of like convinced, like, I need to really just stay away from these kind of things. I I need to not bring it into my house, welcome it, be curious, just stay away. Because I mean, these, these things are real. These spirits are real. You, you ask for it, you're going to get it. And I felt like that was kind of the last straw. Like I need to just, just, 
not no, and I'd not be interested. So when we moved into the we moved into from that apartment, we moved out, moved into a house. My bedroom, there was a huge window that was facing the driveway. And from my window, you can actually see our cars parked. Savannah got up, she went to work. I can feel her, you know, getting up, going to work. I mean, you know that, you know that feeling where you sense people moving, but you're still asleep. And you're like, um, it's too tired, but I feel you. Okay, so I remember her. I remember her seeing her clearly. Like I can hear her, not see her. I'm sorry. I, I could hear her opening the door, and she's ready to go to work. And she closes the door, and then I'm like, okay, I know I'm alone now. I can really just fall back to sleep and not be, you know, being um, distracted. So as I fall asleep, I can feel like maybe like seconds later, I can feel like somebody on the edge of the bed, almost like the bed kind of dented down, you know, where, um, almost like when somebody gets back onto the bed, you feel like you kind of scoop back a little bit. Cause I mean, I was like laying on my side facing the outward outside, like, you know, not in the bed, but outside the bed. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I was in, anyhow, I was facing the opposite side. And so, um, I can feel like a dention, kind of like someone got back on the bed real nice and slow. And I figured, Oh, okay, maybe she called in. Maybe she decided to go in later. Um, she just maybe wants to come back and lay down, and she'll just, like I said, go into work later. And then I feel that person lay down and kind of roll over to my side and bear hugs me, puts their arm around me and kind of squeezes me a little tight. And I, I, I opened up my eyes and thinking it was her. Check this out. Are you ready for it? I open my eyes and I see her getting in her car, closes the door and backs out. So whatever was bear hugging me was still bear hugging me. So when I saw that, I immediately closed my eyes and I prayed and immediately let go. Like it, whatever it did, it just let me go. I mean, I prayed and prayed and spooked me out. So anywho, when that had happened, days later I had... I had a friend of mine, Erica, the friend that Chris doesn't think she exists, had came over to the house and we're in my room, in a different room actually. And um, so I'm talking to her and I'm telling her that, that story, you know, like, hey, I was laying down, somebody was bear hugging me and then I opened my eyes, I saw Savannah was backing out. So I know there was nobody next to me, but something was holding me. So she's like, oh, you're being dramatic. I don't believe in spirits. I don't blah, blah, blah. Are you ready for this? My blow dryer turns on like straight up. I mean, if you know blow dryers, you really got to click that thing on. I mean, there's no way of like you wave your hand. I mean, I don't even know if they've even invented automatic ones, but something it, it, it just all of a sudden it was sitting on my on my dresser. And it just when I was telling her, she's like, I don't believe blah, blah, blah. It just flipped on. Nobody was near it. I was near it. So she looked at me and part of my language, she tells me, oh, fuck you, I don't believe in this. And she ran out of my, I mean, she booked it out of my bedroom. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. And so I just went up to the blow dryer and I just turned it off. Um, Speaking of that, that actually happened with an ex-boyfriend of mine too. We were uh, sleeping at my grandma's apartment and uh, I had a little TV in front of my, uh, and Chris knows this little TV. I'm pretty sure you've seen it. It's a little box TV and wasn't even a flat screen. And, um, I'm going to tell you how freaky this is because, like I said, it's an old TV. So meaning it's a huge box TV. In order to turn that TV on, there was a, a like a button that was a power on the TV. It was broken. So you actually had to somehow put your finger inside the TV and there was like a little click that you would have to click. It was, it was pretty hard. It wasn't like easy. Like I said, wave your hand, turns on. I had the remote always like at my window sealed. Him and I were about to fall asleep. Jason, um... All of a sudden, the TV just turns on by itself. Snow. It was like a snow white kind of like TV, and we both jumped up. And I said, "Where's the remote?" He said, "I don't know." And uh, the remote was perfectly at the windowsill. Nobody could have rolled over it. Nothing. Just <laughs> got up and I jumped out of bed and had to put my finger into the hole and push a little click button, turn the TV off. So little events like that. I mean, I always felt like it happened to me. So. um unexplainable events but 
like I said, I mean, <laughs> pretty creepy stuff, but I don't know how um, you guys feel about these stories. I mean, I have plenty of them. These are just kind of like little ones. Um, but that's probably the little scary things I can remember. Hope you guys enjoy. Um, I love you, Chris. Thanks for having me on your show. Big fan. Bye. This is it, the last story of the evening. Before we continue, I want to personally thank each and every one of you who shared your own stories. I know sometimes it might be embarrassing or scary to let other people know the things that you've gone through. It's bad enough that you have fear of the experience itself, but also the fear of people not believing you when you tell them. So again, I want to say thank you for submitting your stories. I hope you enjoyed them. And I hope I gave them the respect that they deserve as I've told them. I just want to give one more special thanks to Kathy. I'm so glad that you were able to tell those stories and share them on this podcast. On one hand, I feel terrible that those things happened to you. But on the other hand, it's really shown me another side of you and made me respect you even more for getting through those experiences. So let's go into our last story. Just before we do, I want to preface it a little bit. I know the things I'm about to share sound too unbelievable, but I want to be on here if it wasn't true. This story happened to me, and I haven't told a lot of people about it. Whenever I try to do, it's real easy to get the words mixed up or not being able to quite share the feelings that I felt. But as I took the time to write it so I can share it on this episode, uh, it all came flooding back to me and it was very real and it was, you know, now that I look back on it, I find it more interesting and scary, just interesting because it showed me that there's a whole part of life that we don't understand and some of us don't ever get to experience. And at the time it was terrifying, but now it's, it's kind of exciting to have that story of my own. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy telling it. Here is The Tracks and the Asylum. Recently, in my hometown of San Antonio, Texas, a railroad company decided to make the decision to tear up a local haunt. If you grew up here, you would have certainly heard of the ghost tracks. The story of the ghost tracks was told right along with other local legends like the Donkey Lady, La Llorona, and the Cucuy. While there were many more urban legends, the ghost tracks were always a place to take a date and frighten them with the ghostly story of the children who died there. The facts of the story wavers depending on who is telling it, just as most urban legends do. The general consensus is that a bus full of children stalled on a set of tracks on the south side of San Antonio near the historical missions, which are scary all on their own. The bus never made it off the tracks in time to avoid an oncoming train barreling down on the frightened children. All who were on board that bus died. Up until the tracks were tore up by the railroad earlier this month, you could visit these tracks. You would drive up onto the tracks and put your car in neutral. Sometimes you may even have to wait in line as there would be many locals there who brought out-of-town family members or young couples finding ways to clutch to each other in fright. Once you were on the railroad tracks and had the car in neutral, you would sprinkle baby powder on the trunk of your car. Why the baby powder? If you waited a bit, you would see the fingerprints of tiny children appear as they attempted to push your car off the tracks. What made this even stranger was that your car was supposedly pushed up a tiny incline off of the tracks to safety. Though it's since been reported that there was no accident on these tracks and that maybe the incline is actually a decline and that maybe the prints and the baby powder are just manifestations of prints that were already on the trunk, this legend has always been a part of the heart of San Antonio. I visited the tracks on many occasions and always had a fun and sometimes creepy story to share afterwards. The demolition of these tracks made me sad. Never again will a generation of people get to enjoy this experience. While some scoffers may say the story was never true anyway, the story I'm about to share is very true, and it happened right around the corner of the tracks at an abandoned, insane asylum. Many years ago, right after high school, I visited the asylum with my girlfriend at the time and some of our friends. 
My girlfriend and I were drifting apart after graduation as we figured out we wanted different things out of our new lives. I had some idea that this would be one of our last outings together as boyfriend and girlfriend, but we shared many of the same friends, so we banded together to make the trip. I didn't know much about the place, only what my friends were telling me. It was simply an abandoned assailant asylum that was haunted. Supposedly it had been a hot spot for local covens of witches and devil worshippers to gather and perform rituals with the other side. I didn't know about all that. The building certainly did look creepy from the outside. The asylum was immediately next door to a juvenile detention center which made it feel even more dangerous at night. There was a dilapidated wiry fence hanging around its edges. The fence was hardly a deterrent to us in our late teens and practically begged us to climb through. After making sure everyone was within the fence line, we took another inventory of our supplies. There were a few flashlights with fresh batteries, no one had cell phones at the time, and a single whistle. One of my friends had swiped it from a soccer coach he hated his senior year. I don't know why he had it, but it seemed like an appropriate device to have in order to raise an alarm. Our biggest fear was actually being caught in the off-limits building by police and being charged for trespass. We had a plan where we would split off in pairs and run in different directions, eventually meeting up at a nearby mission where we parked our cars. Little did we know that we'd be running to our cars for a far sinister reason. We trudged towards the main building, which looked to be three stories tall. There was a large boarded window with a few loose planks where we could easily move them up to climb inside. Though there was broken glass around the edges of the window, it was an obvious place where entrants would make their way into the dark abyss on the other side. Once we were all through, we started making our way through the large foyer. There was junk and trash everywhere. The flashlights cast glow over the swastikas and encircled pentagrams splattered in seemingly random places all across the walls. Broken beer bottles and even diapers littered the floor, causing us to carefully step around the refuse. All the guys were making jokes, including myself, in an effort to mask the strong uneasiness we felt the moment we crossed over the threshold, albeit it was actually through a window. The trash began to clear up as we continued. There were many rooms, only guarded with doorless frames. There wasn't much to look at in each room besides garbage and more broken glass. We were shocked to find that there were even old documents outlining the conditions of patients from the past. There were handmade fire pits and circles drawn in chalk on the center of the floors in some of the rooms. We naturally assumed this is where the demons were summoned by visiting satanic cults. One of us, I don't recall who, made the joke of summoning the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. We eventually came to a large set of stairs leading up to the second floor. It was at this time that one of the guys said he had to take a leak and would be right back. After he left, I saw that on the side of the stairs there was a door with a rusted padlock on it. We investigated the lock and found it wasn't even clicked in place. It just hung there, open. I was the one who removed the lock and opened the door to reveal a set of narrow steps going down. An immediate debate broke out amongst us as who was willing to make the exodus down those steps. I was the first to explain my eagerness to explore the dark unknown below. I had a reputation for being the crazy kid who would do anything without fear and I was excited to add another story supporting this reputation. It didn't matter that I was actually feeling a strong sense of dread at the thought of going down there. Well, I was only able to convince one other of our group to go down with me. I was a little perturbed that it wasn't my girlfriend but was glad that I didn't have to go down by myself. I probably wouldn't have done it otherwise even though I really wanted to see what was down there. The brave volunteer? was my girlfriend's cousin, and I had only met her a week before that night at a graduation party. If I'm honest with myself, I remember her being cute in her eyeglasses and uh, wasn't completely disappointed that she chose to go with me as I handed her the flashlight. Our group split up as we began heading down those creaky stairs. The other three decided to wait for our urinating friend and then head upstairs with my girlfriend in tow. As we made our way down a surprisingly long set of stairs, my new companion held my arm with one hand while she held the flashlight with the other. We couldn't walk down side by side, so I led the way while holding onto the railing as she shone the light to the side of me onto the steps below my feet. I remember thinking how strange it was that I was sharing this intimate experience of fear and unknown 
with this stranger instead of my girlfriend, but I was emboldened by the fact that she felt safe enough to hold my arm in her own time of uncertainty. We reached the hard floor below and examined our surroundings. We were in a large, empty room. The ceiling was maybe a foot above our heads. The combination of the large, empty space and the low ceiling feeling gave me a sense of claustrophobia and agoraphobia at the same time. We made our way towards the back of the room towards an open door. As we did, I could hear dripping water. This was extremely unnerving to me because I'm very hard of hearing and I don't normally hear sounds like that unless they're right next to my ear. I asked my new friend if she heard the dripping too and she confirmed my suspicion while also shining the flashlight around the room. The only thing it illuminated was the laminated tile, dry as bone. She pointed the flashlight again to the doorway in the back and we crept forward. My heart started pounding so loud I was afraid she could hear it or at least feel my blood pulsing through the veins in our now clasped hands. I wanted to take the flashlight from her as it wandered from the door frame to the other corners of the room, but I knew it was bringing her comfort and a sense of control to this quickly devolving situation. By the time we made it to the doorway, the dripping had turned into a steady sound of streaming water splashing into a large tub or bucket. We crossed into the new room and we saw the source of the sound. Two long rows of old-fashioned tubs, the ones with the ornate feet around the corners, laid horizontally before us. Many looked cracked and some even broken in half. The ones that weren't looked to be filled with water. They each seemed to be spaced about three or four feet apart. There would have been seven tubs in each row, but the back row was missing a tub somewhere in the middle. The walls waved back and forth with lights as a flashlight beam refracted off the water in the tub. Despite there being water in some of the bathtubs, only one in the back had the faucet running. The room was hot and damp, caused by the running water, and I remember wondering why my partner in criminal trespass wasn't wiping the steam from her eyeglasses. I was going to reach out and grab her glasses in an effort to wipe them clean on my shirt, but I thought that was a little too weird, so I left them alone and walked towards the running faucet. I asked her to hold the light on the back tub so I can better see where I was walking towards. I was planning on turning the water off and leaned in towards the valve when the stream suddenly stopped on its own. The, the suddenness of it all startled me beyond explanation and my heart dropped to my butt. I looked back at my girlfriend's cousin, and because of the way the flashlight was held, I could only make out her foggy lenses and a dark hole where her mouth was open in shock. This confirmed to me that I wasn't imagining things. I turned around to take one last look at the tub, when what I saw chills me even to this moment. There was no water in the tub. It was desert dry. It was as if the porcelain hadn't seen a drop of water in centuries. After looking a few seconds in disbelief, the light of the flashlight jerked up and I turned again to face my now motionless companion. The flashlight lay on the floor at her feet and I noticed the walls no longer glistened with the eerily illuminated lines of light. I ran towards the light and swooped it up as I grabbed her arm on my way out of that bathing room. I briefly flashed a beam towards her face and saw that her lenses were no longer fogged up at all. Furthermore, a quick glance and with a point of the light back in the direction of the tubs showed there was no water in any of them. We hastily made our way back through the large and empty room and back to the stairs. I can't even explain it, but it felt like something was coming after us as we traveled through that room. It was obvious that my ally thought the same thing as she began to run. Once at the staircase, I positioned her in front of me as she bound up the stairs, skipping two steps at a time. I alternated between looking back behind me and catching her as she would stumble. The flashlight was no longer pointed at anything in particular as I struggled to even hold it. I would have told her to slow down and be careful where she stepped, but I was just as eager to get out of there and as quick as possible. We reached the top and heard a whistle as we slammed the defunct padlock door behind us. It took us a second for us to realize it was the whistle stolen from our high school coach and it was coming from somewhere outside the building. It seemed like years ago that we were all together planning out this trip into the asylum. That whistle meant it was time to bolt. I grabbed my sidekick's hand and started running. We wove through the trash in the foyer and made our way through the boards over the windowed entrance. Ignoring the new cuts and scrapes, we almost ran halfway back to our agreed upon meeting place. 
We were too drained to run the whole way and walked in silence the rest of the way to our cars. The rest of the group was already there and they were incoherently yelling at each other in argument. The cacophony ended as soon as they saw us and my girlfriend rushed towards us to give her cousin a relieved hug. As she finished and pulled away, she noticed her cousin's missing glasses. In our excitement, I hadn't even realized she had dropped her glasses. She mumbled that they fell off as she was tripping up the stairs and on her way out and was too afraid to stop and get them. Since I held her hand or arm the majority of the time, she explained that her eyes were closed in fright anyway, so it didn't matter if she could only see blurrily or not. We knew we had to go back and get them, but neither her nor I were wanting to go back. The friend who took the potty break earlier offered to go back and get them, and none of us even pretended to argue with him. I don't think he got to see how creepy the whole thing was. I described the door on the side of the main stairs and how there was a padlock on it. I told him the rusted padlock was just hanging there, unlocked, but if he removed it and opened the door, there would be stairs leading down. Somewhere on those steps would be the abandoned glasses. A few minutes after he left, I remember the whistle we heard. I asked about who caught us in the building and my other buddy looked at me with a confused stare. I pointed out that we were only supposed to run away when someone caught us and we heard the whistle. He realized what I meant and explained their own ghastly experience. As we were making our way down into the belly of the building, they were climbing towards the top. The group at this point was my girlfriend, my pee break pal, another buddy, and his girlfriend. They said there was a hall with a large double door at the end. They couldn't get the door to open as it was either stuck or locked. On both ends of the long hall were many other doors, many of them containing rooms not unlike the ones we saw on the first floor. Medical records, filing cabinets, and more trash filled the otherwise barren spaces. As they were inspecting the rooms, my girlfriend noticed a closet at one end with a ladder inside the bolted to the wall. The ladder seemed to be leading to a panel in the ceiling. For people who were too scared to go into the basement with me, they sure were willing to go into a creepy attic. Once they all made it up the ladder and passed the panel, they saw that they weren't actually in an attic. It was more of a small atrium. The walls were very tall and the space surprisingly clean. There were a couple medium-sized columns positioned around the floor space. Through large windows, moonlight spilled in eliminating the need for their flashlights. After a few minutes, they thought there wasn't much more to look at and were about to make their way down the ladder when my buddy's girlfriend noticed the shadow of a birdcage on the wall at the far end. The shape of the birdcage was like the ones that were rounded and domed at the top, like the Tweety Bird's cage in Looney Tunes. They all saw the shadow as soon as she noticed it. It even looked like the shape of a bird on a perch hanging inside. My girlfriend decided that she was going to be the one to collect the birdcage. She thought it was going to be a stuffed fake bird on the perch and was eager to claim it as a cool souvenir of our visit. She was startled when she saw the shadow of the bird flutter its wings and fly to the bottom of the cage where she could no longer see the shadow. As she told this to me, the others in the group confirmed this part of the story. When she was almost there, she even heard some tweeting coming from that direction. At this point, she stopped telling the story until I took her hand and told her to continue. She said that when she got to the cage, she looked inside and couldn't see the bottom because it was too dark. She was a little weary because this is where she thought the bird should be and she didn't hear the tweeting noise anymore. She grabbed her flashlight from her back pocket and aimed it towards the bottom of the cage when she turned it on. To her shock, glowing eyes looked back at her as she realized it was the dismembered head of a cat. She ran back to the ladder screaming and practically skipped the ladder entirely and jumped down. My buddy's girlfriend didn't even bother to ask what she saw and followed down behind her. My buddy stayed behind and so did our pee pal. They both went back to the cage and confirmed what my girlfriend claimed she saw. A single cat head matted with blood. After this terrifying shock, they all reasonably decided that it was time to leave. They were heading back down the main stairway when they heard a large slam from behind them and they all ran out of the building without a second thought as to who was still floundering in the basement. It wasn't until they already made it outside that they remembered to blow the whistle. I didn't have trouble believing their story at all, especially after my experience. With the help of my new partner, we related our own story. 
Right as we finished our story, Mr. Peepal showed up with a confused look. I asked him what was wrong and he said that he went back. Nothing that we said made sense. He said that the door on the side of the stairs didn't have a padlock. I didn't know how he could have missed it. Everyone else agreed. He said that it must have fell off then when we ran out, but he opened the door anyway. It was just a closet. He said there were no stairs leading down. We all started to argue with him and I found myself getting angry, sure that he was at the wrong door. I knew I'd have to go back for the glasses myself. <laughs> it was an idea I was not looking forward to. As I was about to protest that I was going back, he interrupted me by pulling out a pair of glasses out of his pocket. It was her glasses. I snapped at him asking, why would he lie about the door and the stairs if he was there? He swore that he wasn't lying. I demanded that he explain where he got the glasses then. He said, when I opened the door, there were no stairs, just a closet. I thought I may have had the wrong door, but I looked down and saw them. Just a pair of glasses, neatly folding, sitting in the center of the closet. Just a few months ago, a friend of mine was commiserating about how all the places we knew as kids were being torn down, the ghost tracks being one of them. We began to swap stories about our experiences, and I relayed the story I just told you. When I finished, she laughed and said, good one. I asked her what she meant by that. Well, it turns out that she had written a paper on the abandoned asylum in one of her creative writing classes in college. To prepare, she studied everything she can get her hands on about the building. She considered herself an expert on the subject when I asked her to just get to the point. She explained that she thought I was joking because, in her own words, the main building never had a basement. 